Good. Go ahead and get in your Bible to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. Welcome to Marriage 101 class. And um, I think we are about eight weeks into uh, the 14 weeks that uh, I have planned before we uh, go back to our normal uh, adult Bible class uh, routine. And you should have one of those little uh, cards uh, that you can turn in an anonymous question at the end of a class. And uh, as I have said every week before we start this class, these are none of the things we teach in here are things that my wife and I practice perfectly. Uh, but I will say this is that after, as these 35 years have gone on, the better we have done these things, the better our home has uh, become. And so I'm not teaching you this stuff because I have this perfect marriage or because my wife and I do these things perfectly. I'm teaching these principles because they're Bible principles. And to whatever degree you will put these in your life and in your home, they'll help you. You have people here in all kinds of circumstances. We have folks that are soon to be married. We have people who are newly married. We have people who've been married a little while. Uh, we have people who are on their second marriage. Uh, either way, uh, we don't have those things in common, but what we do all have in common is we have this desire uh, to make our home and our marriage better. And the good news is, is that our God is interested in that. Uh, our Creator established the institution of marriage. It wasn't the invention of man or of, an, of a government. Uh, God <laughs> designed it. God started it. And if we want to handle it right, we're going to have to go back to his uh, plans. And as I remind you, uh, every time we get together, it takes more than love and good intentions to have a good marriage. I mean, probably 99% of the people that walk down a wedding aisle uh, love each other. 99% of them believe that their marriage is going to be one of the ones that works, and yet 50% of those, we're told, uh, end up in divorce. And they all started with love and good intentions. Uh, it takes more than that, and that's what this class is all about. Before we start uh, answering questions you've turned in and, and getting to a new subject today, uh, I want to just remind you about the same nine things I remind you about every week. Uh, number one, nothing can be taken back that's been done so far. Uh, what's done is done. Uh, number two, uh, all that any of us can hope to change is today and tomorrow. Uh, and it can change. Uh, number three, if you're struggling, you didn't get where you are in a day, you didn't get where you are in a week, you didn't get where you are in a month. And so if you didn't get where you are in a day or a week or a month, you're not going to get out in a day or a week or a month. Uh, but by the grace of God, you can get out and it can be better. Uh, number four, there's only one person you can control. Uh, there's only one person you can control, and that's never your spouse. It's never your child. And so if there's only one person we can control, it only makes good sense that when we sit in this class, we would be focused on ourselves and our part of our marriage, and that when we handle things in our home, that we would be focused on ourselves uh, because we can't control ourselves. And I'll say this, one person controlling themselves in every situation will make every situation better. Nearly always, when bad things happen, we have two people who are out of control. One person doing what's right, in the right way, at the right time, will always make a difference. Focus on that one. Number five, there's always hope as long as God is involved. Uh, God is love. 
Uh, you may have decided at this point that you never did really love them. You can begin to love. God is love. You may be at the place where you say, do you know what? I don't love them enough. Uh, you can love them more. God is love. You might be at the place where you can say, you know what? I don't love them anymore. You can love again. Uh, God is love. You need to be yielded to the God who is love. You need to have him involved in your situation. There's always hope. Someone sarcastically said there are three rings in marriage, an engagement ring, a wedding ring, and a suffer ring. Uh, somebody wisely said uh, that often the only difference in a successful marriage and a mediocre one consists of leaving about three or four things a day left unsaid. I'll let that sink in a little bit. Uh, somebody wisely said getting divorced just because you don't love someone is almost as silly as getting married just because you do. Uh, number six. Uh, no one is destined to repeat the home in which they were raised. If your home was bad, you can succeed. Number seven, no one is assured to have a great marriage. If your parents had a great marriage, you can fail. Number eight, the marriage that you're in now is a marriage you're supposed to be working on. And number nine, the person to whom you're married is a person to whom you're supposed to be married. And I know I say this every week, and for those of you who are uh, about ready to get married or, or newlywed, this may be unthinkable to you, but it would be highly unusual for you to make it through your whole life and not go through some season where you wondered if you married the right person. Uh, the person to whom you are married is the person to whom you're supposed to be married. And um, like I mentioned earlier, for those of you who are here for the first time, at the end of our class we collect questions and uh, you turn them in. I ask that everybody turn in something. I don't care if you put an X or a smiley face or your tie is gross. Why didn't you clean the spaghetti off before you wore it? You know, I don't care what you put on there, but it gives everybody an, uh, an opportunity to genuinely turn in anonymous questions. And so at the end of the class, write something on it and stick it up there in a pile. Uh, last week, uh, we covered uh, the physical relationship between a husband and wife. And as I said last week, it makes me very awkward talking about it, just like it makes you awkward uh, listening to it. Uh, but it is one of the key areas for a healthy marriage and one of the big areas where husbands and wives disagree. And so it's no surprise that all the questions I'm going to answer this week are related to that so that I can fully move on from this subject. And then when I'm done with these questions, uh, we'll start a new subject today. And by the way, if you were here last week or weren't here last week uh, and you would like one, there is one copy per uh, couple up there. It's uh, a survey of uh, 3,400 people, Christian people, and the intimate part of their lives. Uh, it was done by a professional, and it's interesting. Uh, and... Uh, Get one. It's there for you if you want one. Uh, question number one. Is it wrong to not have sex just because you don't want to, even though your spouse wants to? We talked about this from 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, there is an obligation to make our best effort in this area of our life for both husbands and wives. Uh, that being said, uh, there is reality in that, you know what, there are some times and some days when you just are unable. And what you need to be sure and do, uh, and that, by the way, when you love your spouse, uh, that's an okay thing. Uh, you should 
when you turn them down, it should always be with some kind of reassurance of your love for them, and ideally with some plan of, of when you can, uh, you know, be together. Uh, question number two, how can I be focused on my spouse when I'm physically unable to be with them? Uh, because the physical relationship of a husband and wife is about meeting the needs of your spouse, uh, when you're physically unable to do this and your spouse is still interested, you should do what you can do to make that possible. I mean, uh, go to the doctor. You should be taking some kind of good physical care of yourself. There's all kinds of different medications and things for both men and women that you know, can help in, in this. What you don't want to do is just decide, this doesn't matter. Uh, you know what? It may matter a lot to your spouse, and it will really help your relationship for them to feel like you're doing everything you can. And, and in the meantime, there's a lot of things you can do to meet the emotional and physical needs of your spouse. Um, question number three, my husband and I have a different view on the sexual relationship. Constantly fight about it. What should I do? Uh, you need to begin by asking yourself, uh, is your view of the sexual relationship God's view? And if your views of God, the sexual relationship are not God's views, you need to change your views. And um, if both of you have God's views about this aspect of married life, you're going to still have disagreements over this because everybody does. But you're not going to have any of these major confrontations because God's view is reasonable for both men and women. Um, and these, there's like three questions that all have the same kind of answer. Is oral sex biblical? What is appropriate for spicing up our physical relationship? How far is too far? Uh, oral sex is neither biblical nor unbiblical. Uh, it's an issue of personal preference. Uh, it is not unbiblical to touch your mouth on a neck or an ear, and they're designed to hold up a head and listen. But here's the deal. If your spouse is uncomfortable, then it's too far, and it's inappropriate. Uh, this is never just about you, and um, you need to keep that in mind. Again, if your spouse is not comfortable, then it's not right, because this is about love, commitment, being together and not just pleasing yourself. Question number five, how do I enjoy sex after being raped as a young person and after going through a divorce? This is a really old question that was turned in a long time ago, and I leave it in every year because uh, I think it gets to, to an issue uh, that I think a lot of people deal with because someone, I don't know if it was this time or last time, they turned in a similar question. I think it was this time. How do you have a healthy sex life after you've been sexually abused? Um, the first thing I want to say is I, I'm sorry that you went through that. And um, it's a tragic, terrible thing that there are legitimately evil people in our world. And uh, I, I'm sorry you went through that traumatic event. Um, and though those kinds of things are extremely difficult to under, un, overcome, by the grace of God, they're not impossible to overcome. The first thing you need to do is you've got to forgive that person. And if you don't forgive them, you will be forever in bondage to that evil thing they did. See, a lot of times when this kind of stuff happens, we don't want to forgive them because we feel like then we're saying what, happens was, what happened was okay. 
But that's not what you're saying when you forgive something, forgive someone. What you're saying when you forgive something, someone is, I am leaving all the judgment that needs to be done for this in God's hands. And so the first thing you have to do, you've got to for, forgive them. And um, if you were through a divorce before and you can change houses, I would change houses. Don't begin a new relationship in an old house. Now, I get it. Sometimes because of finances and uh, kids, you, you can't, can't do that. But if you have a choice, start over in a new house. That, that will uh, help you whenever it's possible. Um, understand this also. For a lot of reasons, you're not alone in this. Um, people don't talk about this. Uh, depending on which survey you read and how you define sexual abuse, between 20 and 60% of women have been sexually abused. Again, depending on which survey you read and how you define uh, those things. And so uh, you're not alone in this. But by the grace of God, you can get the victory over this. And if you get the victory over this, what will end up happening is God will use you to help other people who are struggling with the same thing. There's a lot of people out there. I have people come to me regularly. Uh, who can I talk to about? And then I, I have people I send them to. And if you, by the grace of God, work through this and overcome this, and God will help you and he wants you to overcome it, uh, he will use you to help other people struggling with these kinds of things. Uh, as long as you continue to hate, you will be in bondage to what happened. Uh, question number six, how do you handle the situation if the wife has more desire for sex than her husband? Um, you know, understand that almost never do a husband and wife have the desire for the same amount of frequency in this aspect of marriage. Almost never. And so what that means practically is that always there's going to be someone who is going to uh, participate in this aspect of marriage more than they want to and someone who's going to participate less than they really want to. And so it's really no different regardless of which shoe, uh, foot the shoe uh, is on. And uh, a lot of times, you know, we think that it's always the case where it is always the man who, who wants more of this than the wife, and that is not always true. And, you know, I've had ladies feel like, well, I feel bad because uh, the way you're talking, you uh, uh, make it feel like something's wrong. And that's not always the case. You know what? Sometimes some men are just not as interested and some women are more interested. By the way, we're all individuals, and that's all uh, okay. Uh, and the question was kind of worded like they, they feel bad, you know, when, you know, because that's the typical conversation, you know, of men wanting this and women not. And, and what I would say is, listen, if you're single, you shouldn't feel bad when the preacher's talking about marriage, and if you uh, don't have children and the preacher's talking about parenting, you don't think any of that should make you feel bad. I mean, what, what happens when someone preaches or teaches, they're, they're having a general, general conversation. And if you want specific things that have to do with you, then what you need to do is you, you need to get personal counsel on, on, on things and apply what you hear to everybody where it applies um, to you. Uh, today, uh, by the way, I'm glad we're done with this aspect of this class. 
Uh, it makes me feel very awkward teaching on it. But listen, it is one of the four primary areas that husband and wives fight about and disagree about. And, uh, and so it's important to talk about because the Bible has quite a lot to say about it. And so today we're going to begin a new subject. And actually, I probably will spend three weeks on this subject. We have a lot of questions about this that have been turned in. And it is an area of, of life that we're just going to have to deal with. And that's simply this, uh, fair fighting. <laughs> uh, or you could call it, how can I disagree with my spouse without hurting them? Um, my wife is in here. I, I couldn't tell you the last time we had a fight. Uh, decades. I don't know. 30 years. We disagree all the time. All the time. We disagree about every area of life on a regular basis because we're two different people. But you see, when we have this assumption that just because we disagree, we're going to fight, you have the wrong assumption. Just like if you assume that you're going to grow to the place or love this person to such a degree that we're never going to disagree, that, that is never going to happen. The fact of the matter is, is that uh, handling our disagreements as husbands and wife well is going to make all the difference in the world as to whether we have a peaceful home or one that is constantly in turmoil. Acts chapter 15, verse 36. Acts 15, 36. It says, And some days after, Paul said unto Barnabas, Let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where they have preached the word of the Lord and see how they do. And Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark. And Paul thought not good to take him with them, who departed uh, from them from Pamphylia, and went not with them to the work. And the contention was so sharp between them that they departed asunder one from the other. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed into Cyprus. And Paul chose Silas and departed, and being recommended by the brethren under the grace of God, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, confirming the churches. And we'll stop there. This is a pretty familiar section of Scripture to those of you who are uh, a little bit of a Bible student. But understand, we have two men here who are both godly men. They were not only both godly men, they were good friends. They were good friends in life, they were good friends in the faith, and they had a serious disagreement. And understand, this disagreement was over a family member. John Mark was Barnabas's nephew. And we may spend a whole week on, on, on this later, but one of the biggest areas over which we disagree as husbands and wives is how to handle family. Uh, unfortunately, when it comes to handling our family, there are not very many people who are spiritually minded and think rationally. By the way, that's not okay just because a lot of people do it. Uh, as you've heard me say b before, a lot of people uh, say blood is thicker than water. And what they mean by that is um, because someone is related to me, uh, I'm going to take their side over you because you're not related to me. That's, that's what they mean when they say blood is thicker than water. And that may be fine under some context, but listen, blood should never be thicker than truth. Did you hear me? 
Blood should never be thicker than truth. And we ought never to take the side of anybody because they're our family over something that's right and wrong. And if our family is involved, we simply have to say something like, listen, you know what, they're my sister, I love them, but I don't agree with what they're doing either. Because in effect, what happens when we take the side of blood over truth, we've said to God, God, my family is more important than what you say about it. And this was a disagreement over family. And sadly, unfortunately, in the church, a lot of times, blood is thicker than truth. Now, this conflict happened between these two good men, these two godly men, these two men who are greatly used by God and called by God. And understand, if it's going to happen to men like Paul and Barnabas, it's going to happen to us, especially husbands and wives. You say, why? Well, Paul and Barnabas had spent a lot of time together. And husbands and wives spend a lot of time together. And when you spend a lot of time together, what happens is you know the other person's weaknesses and flaws. And when we know their weaknesses and flaws well, it makes respecting each other more difficult. It makes it easier to have a real fight. Uh, by the way, both of them meant well. I mean, it isn't like Paul was ill-intentioned and Barnabas was good-intentioned and the other way around. Listen, they both believe that John Mark should be forgiven. It's just that Barnabas believed that John Mark should be forgiven and was ready to go on that mission trip. And Paul believed that John Mark should be forgiven, but he needed more time before he was placed in a position of leadership. And you, at times, as husbands and wives, you're both going to be well-intentioned. See, we, we think when we disagree always that someone is ill-intentioned, and, and that's not always true. They knew each other well. They meant well. They spent a lot of time together. And you know what? It was an important issue that you just couldn't overlook. Uh, God had called Paul to go on this mission trip. And as we'll talk more when we talk about fair fighting, you know, we don't actually have to agree about everything. But you know what? This was something that they had to come to a conclusion on. And so that led to this strong disagreement. By the way, they both had strong personalities. And when you have a strong personality, sometimes that strength rolls over into areas where it's not good. And so understand that if these men could have this, you and I are going to have it. And if you ever think that you're going to love each other enough to never disagree anymore or be so spiritually minded that you never disagree anymore, you might as well forget it. That is unrealistic. By the way, God purposely did not make you and your spouse the same. Uh, remember, our goal is not to think alike on everything. Our goal is to think together. And the fact of the matter is, is by the way God generally designed men and generally designed women, the men to be the head of the home and the wife to be the heart of the home, I mean, understand that each person brings a unique perspective and something valuable to every situation. And so you and I are just going to have to face this issue. We will never get to the place where we're going to agree on everything and so since we are going to disagree, how can we disagree and not fight? 
How can we disagree in a manner that never leaves our spouse hurt? By the way, there are a lot of homes where the husband and wife genuinely love each other. But they handle themselves so poorly when they disagree with one another that that relationship is tumultuous, the home is not peaceful, and at times, and you probably could give names to this, there were people who genuinely loved each other but just fought so much because they couldn't disagree well that it caused a divorce in their relationship. How do we handle the inevitable disagreements that are going to characterize any home we try to build. Please go back in your Bible to Proverbs chapter 12. We'll probably spend about 12 weeks on the, or I'm sorry, three weeks on this because there's a lot of questions turned in and I, I want to take time for questions because it is our opportunity to practically apply these biblical principles. One of the greatest things you'll ever do in your Christian life is learn biblical principles. Uh, because you will know what to do and what not to do in the vast majority of situations. So I'd like to begin today talking about ways we can handle our disagreements and uh, improve. You might call these rules for fair fighting. Here's the first thing. Be careful how you talk to your spouse when you disagree. Uh, we're going to read a, several Proverbs that talk about the importance of our words and how our words can be two different ways. Proverbs 12.25 says, Heaviness in the heart of man maketh it stoop, but a good word maketh it glad. Did you hear that? A good word makes a glad heart. That's powerful. Look at chapter 15, verse 23. says, a man hath joy by the answer of his mouth. And a word spoken in due season, how good is it? By the way, due season means at the right time. Saying the right thing at the right time, how good is it? Look at chapter 16, verse 24. Pleasant words are as in honeycomb, sweet to the soul, health to the bones. That's a powerful description of Good words. Look at chapter 18 and verse 8. Here we are on the other side of the coin. The words of a talebearer are as wounds. And they go down into the innermost parts of the belly. Notice their words are wounds. And not just wounds on the outside, wounds on the inside. Look at chapter 25. Verse 11, a word fitly spoken. It's like apples of gold and pitchers of silver. Saying the right thing is a beautiful thing. Apples of gold and pitchers of silver. We won't turn there in the interest of time, but Psalm 64, 3 says, Who wet their tongue like a sword and bend their bows to shoot their arrows, even bitter words. And our words can be a sword, they can be arrows, and they can be bitter. Now, all those things that I just read, they come as no surprise to everybody here. 
mean, everybody here understands from personal experience just how it feels when someone says the right thing to you at the right time and when someone says the wrong thing to you in the wrong way at the wrong time or speaks hurtful words. We all understand it. And I have no doubt that in this room this morning, there's some people who are very insecure because of things that your spouse has said to you when they were angry and you guys were disagreeing. And your disagreement became a fight. I remember many years ago when I was in my early 20s working with a guy who was older than me. His name was Danny, and he basically started... Uh, really just being depressed and upset, and I asked him about it, and he said that him and his wife were getting a divorce. I forget how long they'd been married, and, and I, you know, I, I was a kid. I didn't know you're not supposed to ask why, uh, but I asked, I said, why? What, what happened? And uh, he put his head down, and, and I'll never forget what he said. He said, we were having a fight, and I said, I don't know why I ever married you. And she said, the day I said that was the day her heart began to turn away from me. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I, I know that lots of people in this room have said things way worse than that. It, and it's not right. And, and I get that she should have forgiven him and moved on. And I get that he should have never said that, but my, my point is simply this, is that when we are not careful about what we say, particularly when we disagree, we are really headed to do some damage to our relationship that sometimes, unfortunately, becomes irreparable. That famous phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names can never hurt me. Uh, it's a cute phrase, but all of us here know that that's only true about us physically. And when it comes to our mind and our hearts, all of us could go back to our mind and heart and find things that different people had said to us over the years that we still remember how that felt. Arrows. Swords. Pleasant. Sweet to the soul. Apples of gold and pitchers of silver. I can't think of anything better to begin to talk about when we think about uh, how to fight fairly and how to not hurt our partner, our spouse, when we fight than this simple thing. We need to be careful what we say. You know, there are a lot of unhappy spouses who have never been cheated on. They've never been pushed. They've never been hit. But they've been deeply wounded in their heart and mind because of careless words. And I just remind everybody as we begin to make some deeper practical applications about this that it only takes one person controlling their tongue to make things 99% better. It's a very simple thing. But if a fight is going to occur, it always takes two people to fight. If you have any one person in a situation who is unwilling to fight, you will not have much of a fight. Disagreements are inevitable, but there's no reason that any spiritually-minded couple ever has to have a seriously fight. And so let me uh, give you some things about handling our words and disagreements 
to keep our disagreements from becoming fights. First, go back to Proverbs chapter 15. I know everybody here, you would like to have a more peaceful home. I know everybody here would like to be able to say, you know what, my spouse and I disagree all the time, but we never have a serious fight. How can you do that? Here's number one. You ready? Don't yell. Don't yell. Look at Proverbs 15.1. A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. How do you turn away wrath? A soft answer. Have you ever noticed how it's hard to keep yelling at someone who doesn't yell back at you? Why is it that we really feel like volume is actually going to fix anything? Isn't it kind of twisted thinking to think, well, but they didn't hear me when I yelled a little bit. When I yell louder, then it's going to fix it. <laughs> but, but yet that's, that's, that's the kind of mentality that we have. On the surveys that you uh, turned in, uh, basically 75% of the surveys said that you yell when you uh, have a fight. Uh, by the way, just because a lot of people do it doesn't make it okay. A soft answer turneth away wrath. Uh, by the way, I've had a lot of people angry at me over the years. Uh, do you know one of the things I've learned is that when they begin to raise their voice, if I purposely keep mine low, it helps. That's true in the workplace. That's true in ministry. That's true with your children. That's true with your spouse. Either person using a gentle tone greatly diffuses a situation. And when you begin to yell, instead of putting wire, uh, water on a difficult situation, what you're doing basically is you're throwing gas on the fire. Grievous words stir up wrath. How do I handle my words in a disagreement? Here's number two. Avoid using words like always and never. You always, you never, almost never are those words accurate. And they hurt people. Avoid them. Here's number three. Avoid conflict in front of your children whenever possible. By the way, remember, if you weren't in our, if our, uh, every other summer I teach parenting classes and and in, in the parenting classes, one of the things I teach is to avoid public discipline as much as possible, uh, to do it privately, because when you discipline in public, now all of a sudden you have two egos involved, yours and the child's. And so neither one of you really respond to the situation fully. What you're doing is you're responding to how everyone else is responding to the situation, and that means you're going to often mishandle it. And understand that when you disagree, you, if you begin to fight in front of your children, uh, now all of a sudden you have two egos involved. Somebody turn in the question, how do we keep from arguing in front of our children? 
Um, there are a lot of other private things husbands and wives do that they don't do in front of their children. Right? Because we choose to keep some things private. Choose to keep your serious disagreements private. Especially, don't disagree about the children in front of the children. Uh, Listen, there's not a child that doesn't play the parent on their side against the other parent. Uh, Disagree about the children in private. Somebody turned in the question, uh, should we disagree in front of the children so that the children learn how to disagree? Uh, What I would say is that depends on how well you disagree. Uh, And even if you disagree well, don't disagree about the children in front of the children. Now, if you have grown to the place where you handle disagreements well, I do think it's helpful for children to learn how to work through disagreements. Because, by the way, they're going to have inevitable disagreements with their spouse. They're going to have inevitable disagreements in their workplace. They're going to have inevitable disagreements in ministry. And it is a good thing to learn that. It is a learned behavior. Number four, avoid bringing up the past. Now, I get that some things that happen have context and become a part of the discussion. I I, I get that. But you, you, you know what? When you have genuinely forgiven someone, you're trying to move on from some offense rather than bringing it up every time there's a disagreement. Whoever started this whole business, forgive and forget, that's goofy. You can't forget. God doesn't forget. But what God does when he forgives is he treats us as if that has been covered and put aside, paid for. He doesn't forget. But avoid bringing up the past. Here's number five, uh, Proverbs chapter 10. Some people in here will have more trouble with this than others. My wife does not have trouble with this. I have trouble with this. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19. In the multitude of words there wanteth not sin. He that refraineth his lips is wise. Don't talk too much. The more you talk the more you're going to say wrong things. By the way, one of the first and smartest things you'll ever begin to do in your relationship is when you feel yourself getting angry and when you feel like you might say something that you shouldn't say, you need to have the self-discipline to say, do you know what? Let's walk away from this for a few moments and we'll get back together and talk again in 30 minutes or an hour or 20 minutes, whatever. Listen, you are never going to fix anything with angry words. And uh, again, I'm the one in our house who tends to be the the terrier, you know, who who likes to yap. And, you know, there's times when I needed to just say, you know what, Uh, Sherry, I need need to walk away. And if your spouse says that, you need to let them. I mean, I can't tell you how many marriage counseling situations I've been in where... uh, Somebody says that, and then the other person just follows them around the house. Stop. 
Stop. Stop. Let them walk away. And when you walk away, you ought to begin to think, Lord, what should I be thinking here? Lord, what should I say here? Lord, what should I not say here? And we're going to have to stop, and uh, we'll pick up there next week. You should have some questions. Uh, Do something. Write something on that paper. Fold it in half. Set it in a little pile up here. If you want one of those uh, surveys uh, that I passed out last week, they're also up here in a pile, one per family, please.